What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You are weak and greedy and selfish. And you are the root of every problem. You are why people betray one another. This was a voicemail about which review of ours, Adam? It might just be the one we're about to do, Josh. Elizabeth Moss and that clip from Queen of Earth, the latest from writer-director Alex Ross Perry, a favorite young writer-director of ours. Our review, plus the top five films of 1988. That and more. Weak and greedy and selfish? Yeesh. Ahead on Film Spotting. Spotting is brought to you by Harry's. For guys like you who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to harrys.com and get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code FILMSPOTTING when you check out. We're also brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Josh, what are a few of those titles available this week from Mubi? Well, Mubi's double bill is going to include Butter on the Latch and Thou Wast Mild and Lovely. A filmmaker and performance artist in Joe Swanberg's circle, Josephine Decker, caught Mubi's attention at Berlinale with a pair of atmospheric experimental thrillers full of head trips and eroticism. Both of these pictures ended up on the New Yorker's list of the top 10 films of 2014. Also at Mubi is Gangs of Wasipur. Indian director Anurag Kashyap's two-part gangster epic left movie stunned at its premiere in Cannes. It's described as equal parts battles without honor and humanity and low-key Scorsese. Movie's pleased to present the film in its full HD glory. One more pick here, Disco and Atomic War. The Cold War and all its absurdity blooms in this sly, provocative, preposterously fun documentary about a battle for the airwaves in a corner of the Soviet Empire, where, with Knight Rider and Emmanuel, a dictatorship may have met its match. Here's what I love about movie. All of those titles sound fascinating, and I had not heard of any of them. So we're always discovering new things here because of Mubi. They introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. And you can use their mobile app to download movies to watch offline. Our listeners can try Mubi for free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. This week's show, Josh, live from the rooftop of Nakatomi Plaza. We've got some great guests lined up. Ebby Calvin Nuklelouch is here, Prince Akeem of Zamunda, and Chicago gang boss Jimmy Serrano. If you got all those references, congratulations, you're officially as old as we are. Later in the show, our top five films of 1988. But before Adam and I start blubbering over beaches, let's get to Alex Ross Perry's Queen of Earth. A week at the lake. Who the hell are you? Me. Rich. He likes to hang out sometimes. Relaxation, peace and quiet, but under the surface lurks emotional imbalance. See, Catherine is this great artist, but she's hiding in her father's shadow. An imbalance that tears open psychic wounds. Please don't talk to me like that. Like what? Like you're superior to me or any of us. And threatens to shake the very foundations of sanity. I heard you walking around super late last night. Sound like you were talking to yourself? I feel sick. I feel messed up. Well, we should trade places. 
see how we feel then. Due to some confusion behind the scenes here, and it turns out purely my fault. I'm glad you clarified that. (laughs) I had to, Josh. (laughs) We're going to forego our usual long-winded setup, much to listeners rejoicing, I'm guessing. Yeah, what if this turns out to be... Just as good as what we usually do. (laughs) It probably will be. We'll we'll end up saving ourselves a lot of time. The film we're reviewing is Queen of Earth. Alex Ross Perry, as we said off the top, we talked about it a little bit on our previous show with Michael Phillips. You at the time had not seen Queen of Earth, though, Josh. Now we're going to dive in a little bit to this film. Pretty simple premise. Two friends, played by Catherine Waterston, so good in Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice last year, and Elizabeth Moss, who was so good in multiple films last year, including Alex Ross Perry's Listen Up, Philip. They converge on Waterston's lake house, where Waterston is presumably going to help Moss's character, Catherine, recover from some recent losses in her life. The loss of her father, a fairly famous artist who she assisted, and also the end of a relationship as she had just been dumped by her boyfriend. That's how the movie opens. What follows is something similar to Ingmar Bergman's persona. It's basically a psychological thriller as their friendship completely unravels, if they really had much of a friendship to begin with. Now, I was putting my notes together for this movie, Josh, and I recall that you loved Elizabeth Moss's performance in Listen Up, Philip, and in fact had singled out a very memorable scene where the camera stays on her after, as it turns out, another breakup. And I went to your website to try to get your notes to see what you had said about her performance and that scene and particularly how Alex Ross Perry shoots her face, because I think it applies to this film as well. While I was digging up that quote, I came across another one that I thought was applicable to this movie. You wrote, even if they're meant as self-critiques of a sort, movies about insufferable narcissists frequently come across as another form of self-indulgence. Now, it turns out you like to listen up, Philip, even though it's a movie very much about insufferable narcissists. I would argue that this film has two even more insufferable narcissists at its core. I'm wondering if you had any problems getting past that with this movie. Well, first of all, thanks for the spike in traffic. I noticed Mm. that it went up from one to two. That must have been you. (laughs) Appreciate that. I didn't get close enough to Queen of Earth to even have that sort of response where I felt that it was indulging in narcissism by portraying narcissist. I couldn't access this movie, uh, to be honest. It, It was a slog, and that does come from someone who liked Listen Up, Philip, and liked Alex Ross Perry's debut film, The Color Wheel, even more. I think we're going to have to spend maybe most of our time talking about Moss and her performance, maybe both of the performances, because that was the crux of the problem for me and trying to figure out why, because this was the main reason I was looking forward to the film was the pairing of Perry and Moss again, because I thought he had used her talent so well in Listen Up, Philip, and that one scene in particular with the close-up of her face. And so I was confused when this movie was not working for me, using some of the same tools, trying to figure out, okay, what is the difference here? And as you mentioned, Queen of Earth opens with an extreme close-up of Catherine, Mm -hmm. and she's completely distraught at this point, and the mascara's running down. I mean, this this is high drama. This is overwrought. And I think I was on board at that point. I was too. You know, it's like, okay, she can do this. I'm going to, this is going to be full bore here for this film. And I think as the movie progressed, I've 
moved further and further away from her and from her character and from from the entire picture, really. And it did, in a good way, help me realize what I like about Moss's performances and her style of acting or maybe what she is best at. And it's something of an irony because it's not exactly what I praised her for in Listen Up, Philip. She is an actor, maybe a phrase that I'm trying to work around is she's an aside actor. And what I mean by that is I think she's at her best not necessarily because of the words that she is delivering, but the little asides that she finds. Things like the way her she's shockingly instinctual in terms of her facial gestures. I, she's so quick that I, I, I'm, I can't believe that this is something that obviously it has been rehearsed, so it's not completely spontaneous, but it feels so spontaneous with her, her facial gestures or even the way she represses expressions. She's so good at that. Yeah. When when Elizabeth Moss smiles, she's almost never happy. There's just so many things going on at once. And what Queen of Earth, by this emphasis on the close-ups, emphasis on monologues and soliloquies, the movie opens with one, each of the characters gets a few. There are other the movie works differently as well, but primarily that's what it is. I don't think it's serving Elizabeth Moss in the way that she can do her best work. Yeah. This is a case, I think, of a filmmaker arguably completely executing his vision. All of his collaborators, including Moss, achieving exactly what they set out to do and me admiring the result, but never being able to engage with it. We are completely in lockstep on this film Mm -hmm. and we're in the minority, too. And I really thought you might come in and show me the error of my ways and articulate for me what I didn't get with this movie. But some of the words and phrases you used there directly tap into the experience I had, which is not being able to access it, not being able to get close enough to it. I really have been wrestling with why I couldn't get closer. And we should be close. We should be overwhelmed and you can't get much closer claustrophobic yeah, by this film. Then right? the camera puts you in this movie. But it's a film obviously designed to keep you off your bearings, but eventually it felt to me like a cinematic exercise in trying to keep an audience off their bearings. The combination of those close-ups, the sound design, very in-your-face here, the music, too, separate from the sound design, it's probably overwrought and overbearing in exactly the way Alex Ross Perry intended it to be, but again, kept me at a distance. And it's also an exercise in seeing maybe how many influences a director could combine into one movie. Not only do you have a little bit of persona, but it's Rosemary's Baby meets Suspiria meets Repulsion. There's some Cassavetes. There's Mm -hmm. some De Palma. Michael Phillips mentioned Fassbender last week. And that's another thing. I asked Michael for some insight on how he perceived the humor of this film, because I see a lot of people putting it in line with his other films, different, darker, but still a dark comedy and calling it funny. And look, it's impossible for me not to see the absurdity of a character telling another character some of the things that Moss's character tells characters in this movie. We included a clip there in the intro to the show, but when she quite seriously says to Rich, Patrick Fugit, who's kind of the boyfriend of sorts of Catherine Waterston in this film. He lives nearby, comes He's more by. like a drop-in neighbor. Yeah, really just to make out yeah. from time to time. When she says, you are why people betray one another. You are why there is nowhere safe or happy anymore. You are why depression exists. You are why my father had to die because he couldn't live in a world like this. It makes me laugh now 
thinking about it in the moment, it didn't at all. And maybe this is such a slow-burning thriller slash dark comedy that it takes you about three days for any of that humor to really sink in. But the thriller part of it, the psychological thriller part of it, never really sunk in either because I was so hyper-aware of the feelings it was trying to provoke that that's where I could never access it. If you laugh at a scene like that when she tells off the Fugit character, and I didn't laugh either throughout this film. I don't think that should be the litmus test for whether the movie succeeds or not. It's just how I responded to it. It didn't occur to me to laugh Mm -hmm. throughout the picture. If you were to find that scene funny, I suppose it's because she is just going off on this rant, and it's the gall of the character in this situation, perhaps, and, and the level she takes it to that I suppose could be funny. But this is another example of the monologues that the movie is built around. And and listen, I'm I'm not against that style. I think those things, soliloquies can be higher wire acts for performers and they can pull them off and they're a thrill to watch, but I think they can also be straitjackets. And this is a case, again, going back to, to Moss's Towns in particular, where um, it's, it's bounding her in and putting rules on her in terms of here is the only way you're going to be able to communicate in this film. She finds areas and corners here and there where she does her usual good stuff, but primarily you're going to communicate through this manner and it does restrict her then. I also found, you know, you talked about it in terms of an experiment, I think you said because of the references, and I think that that's another manner of filmmaking that can work. I don't always get tired of filmmakers clearly marking their references, but it can also feel contrived Mm -hmm. at certain points. And it did so here in the references and also in the relationships of the characters. And when you build your movie around this central dynamic between Catherine and Virginia, there's really no trajectory to them here. No. When they first meet, we get a sense of this passive-aggressive antagonism they share, and there's some learning as to what it's rooted in. The movie has flashbacks embedded in it to the year before they were at the lake house that I suppose you could say builds to a reveal, but all that really does is flip-flop. The antagonism, it's not um, revealing in any sort of sense where you say, oh, I've learned something new about them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the Patrick Fugit character, too, there's an immediate antagonism between his character and Moss's character, Catherine, that felt like it was there to just bring in some friction to the film more than revealing anything about the particular psychology of these characters or their relationships. Mm -hmm. Everything feels so close to me. Like the good and the bad. Things aren't so bad right now, though. No. You're absolutely right, Virginia. They're worse. They're much, much worse. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the latest film from writer-director Alex Ross Perry. It features... A wonderful performance from Elizabeth Moss, and we'll get back to her in a moment. But I do want to touch on what you were saying in terms of that trajectory, because really, we are so in the minority on this film. I was looking for some support. Did any other critics out there have a similar experience to me? And honestly, I didn't really find any, but there were a few mixed reviews. And Anthony Lane in The New Yorker 
said this, and he's referencing Persona here, that film also made emotional sense as a study of a patient and her nurse, whereas when Catherine calls Virginia my best friend, I simply didn't buy it. Nothing in their conduct speaks of good companionship, still less of love. Now, I think we could quibble with that a little bit because you could look to the fact that, yes, they argue all the time and they seem to be just torturing each other with their behavior verbally and non-verbally, but she also does agree to take her into her home. And we see her doting on her at times, just like a nurse would. So you could argue that she does have her best interests here at heart. That said, he does tap into something that I do think is fundamentally true about the film. And when we go back to those flashbacks and we see them a year earlier, even then, there's so much tension and animosity and antagonism that that's where we don't have anywhere for this relationship to go. They have one giggling, happy scene together in that flashback. But even then, they're teasing each other. You know, they're being friendly about it, but it's the same central dynamic at yeah. play. You're right. But Moss's performance, you really hit why she's so good. And I think that there are elements of it here, certainly in this movie, in terms of her being someone who is almost better when she's not delivering a bunch of lines. And where that does come through here with Moss and with Waterston is in Ross Perry's tendency to feature the person who's listening to something just as much, if not more, than he features the person who's actually delivering those lines. And so we get some wonderful moments, and this is where not taking notes during a review and seeing the movie two weeks ago really backfires, but there's a scene in particular that speaks to exactly what you were articulating earlier, Josh, and that's that whole idea of her almost being better in those aside moments. And I think it's a scene where she's just come in from being outdoors with Virginia. They've had a reasonably lighthearted experience together. And I think she walks in and Rich is there. Patrick Fugit is there. And now their plans have completely changed. Everything has now kind of gone haywire. And you just see how she is caught completely off guard by it. She has to act happy about what she's just walked into. And Ross Perry keeps the camera on her, but this time at a distance. I don't think he goes in for that close-up. So by doing that, we just have to watch her character flounder. She goes through all these different emotions where... It's almost like she puts up the facade that you would expect someone to do in that moment to act like, no, it's okay. I'll go along with whatever you guys want to do. But then she immediately starts to crumble. She applies some spackle to it. She starts to crumble again, puts up a little bit more spackle, a little bit quicker this time. She's just constantly in flux. This character is in flux, and Moss handles that so well. And that opening scene, which it sounds like was maybe our joint favorite scene in the movie and the movie's high point, that is another remarkable bit of acting because you open on her face and my first reaction seeing her with her hair a mess her makeup running she's crying she's got a red nose because of the crying pale skin i thought she looked like a deranged circus clown and then i saw the poster yeah, later for the movie that's what it's and taken from, it sure. seems almost certainly like that was perry's intention here but it does cue you into the tone for lack of a better word of this film immediately and the fact that there isn't going to be any sympathy for this character whatsoever. It's a really raw, vulnerable, exposed Which kind of performance. Which we should know from Listen Up, Philip. Absolutely. So I actually have another favorite scene uh, to, to say something in praise of the movie. And it's a good example of what you were talking about, the moment where she comes in and has to play without dialogue. It's a standout set piece, actually, with the two of them having a late night conversation, it begins with a shot of the ceiling fan above them that's on. And so the light is being 
refracted through it. So there's a strobe light effect and the camera comes down on Waterston. And all she's doing is listening to Catherine share some of her woes about her relationship. But the way the light is, it's thro- there's, it's throbbing menace hmm. on Waterston's face. And it was a, a really jarring, remarkable moment. And then he holds the camera there. Moss is in the background, but we're mostly focusing on Waterston's face. And I think that's Waterston's best moment. And then what does he do? That's a long scene. It's, it's a long just scene on their faces. Because yeah. he swings over mm-hmm. when Waterston starts sharing, as you know, conversations with friends do. I'm going to tell you something that's been bothering me. And how do we often respond? Before we even offer sympathy, we say, well, this is what's been bothering. That's the beauty of that, right? She launches into an even longer tirade that's more solipsistic. And the camera shifts over to watch Moss listen. And they're both doing their best work as they're listening. Mm -hmm. So I I think that's just an example of uh, the different forms of performance that are going on in this film. And maybe the ones, the form that it relies on the most is not the most successful. Queen of Earth is out now in limited release. It's available on demand via Amazon and iTunes and probably your cable provider. That's how I saw the movie via cable on demand. If you agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. It's film spotting poll time when we come back. We're going to offer a variation on our patented actor death match. This time, it's Johnny Depp versus Johnny Depp versus Johnny Depp. We'll explain in a moment. Stay with us. Quick interruption here, folks, as we wanted to take a moment to give a shout out to our friends at Harry's.com. Harry's is fixing a problem most of us have. They've fixed a problem I certainly had, Josh, and that is paying too much for overpriced razors and also always forgetting that I needed new razors and then having to frantically go buy them at the last minute. Now, because of Harry's, I don't have to deal with any of those problems. Razors typically are very expensive, running about $4 a blade. So a guy who shaves every day ends up spending hundreds of dollars a year just on razors. And then when we go to the store, they're hard to get. They're behind those locked up plexiglass cabinets. But Because of Harry's, we can get high-quality razors at about half the price of those big brand blades. They engineer them at their own factory in Germany for sharpness and high performance, and they ship them for free to your front doorstep. And because they make and ship their own blades, they are a more efficient company, which means they can give us factory direct pricing. Josh, as you know, I've been using Harry's for a while now. They give me a clean, close, comfortable shave great look and feel, but the price really is what matters most to me. And as I said, the fact that every 
eight weeks or so when I need new razors, eight more show up right on time, like clockwork, in the mail. If you want to get $5 off your first purchase, go to harrys.com and use the coupon code FILMSPOTTING. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com and enter coupon code FILMSPOTTING at checkout. We thank Harry's for their support. Hello, Kickstarters. I would like to tell you about the latest project from Starburns Industries, one of today's most innovative animation studios. The project comes to us from one of the greatest artistic minds of our generation, Charlie Kaufman, the cinematic genius behind such films as Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, and Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. It sounds fake, doesn't it? Well, it's not. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Yes, Starburns Industries is real. And if you're a close follower of Fall Film Festival coverage, you may also know that Charlie Kaufman, yes, the genius behind being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I think we can call him a genius, Josh, has made the long-awaited follow-up to his directorial debut, Synecdoche, New York. It's called Anomalisa. And it's a stop-motion animated feature that was funded by about 6,000 backers via a Kickstarter campaign that launched back in 2012. The film made its surprise debut last weekend at the Telluride Film Festival, along with a handful of other highly anticipated fall releases. Some of them came up multiple times on our fall preview last week, including Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs, and Black Mass with Johnny Depp. We really don't know at this point when we might see Anomalisa Josh, but it is that time of year when festivals like Telluride in Venice, which closed last weekend, or the just-opened Toronto Film Festival inaugurate the busiest time of the movie year. So basically, it's a scramble from now till the end of the year to see everything that needs to be seen. And you're getting a head start on me. You got to go to Sundance in January. I couldn't make it. You're now going to Toronto, which I haven't been to for four years, I think, at this point. Any plans you can highlight for us? I can't wait. I've never been, and I'm going for the last three or four days of the festival. I'll be there. I forget the exact date. I did not get my press credentials application in in time, so I know you'll feel so sorry for wow. me. But you know, I'm, I'm going to be boy. shut out of those those press screenings. I'm going to have to fend for myself. I'm, I'm sure I can manage. Uh, what's nice is I'm going with a, a group that's uh, it's called Into the Noise, and they handle a lot of the logistics and stuff. So um, they asked, what films are you interested in seeing? We're going to try to get tickets. So I have a list that I'm really looking forward to, and I, I put Anomalisa right there at yeah, the top. It, to it was be. the first I'd heard of it, uh, but I, it's up there right now. Also, I'm hoping to possibly catch Lobster. This is Yorgos Lanthimos' yeah, new more movie. More on that in a moment. Dogtooth director, favorite here at Film Spotting. Green Room, another film I was unfamiliar that was coming up, but it's going to be playing from Jeremy Saulnier. This is the Film Spotting Golden Brick Award winner from last year, Blue Ruin, that he directed. It's another crime thriller. So I might get a chance to see that. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. It wasn't eligible for our fall movie preview, though, because I think it's just a film festival movie this fall. So they've set dates for mm-hmm. 2016. Okay, yeah. well, I still might try to check it out. And Assassin may be my chance to finally become familiar with Ho Shen. Haven't seen any of his films. He actually had one that 
came out in 1988, so I don't know if that'll make your list, Adam. Cemetery of Splendor is the latest from the Taya tour behind Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. I would like to check that it out. It sounds fascinating. All it of his really films does. sound fascinating. I'm sure I'll be lost and befuddled as I was in Uncle Boonmi, but uh, in an enjoyable way. And Taxi, your most anticipated film of the fall, Jafar Panahi, that's going to be there. So, man, it's it's just a... Sundance was new to me too. And that was a lineup where just about everything, I tried to avoid the ones that were familiar to me and that would be opening later in the year. So everything else was unknown filmmakers, largely unknown films, obviously. And this is exciting in a different way because they are somewhat familiar names with big pictures. I'm going to try a similar strategy and avoid anything that is opening in Chicago. Mm -hmm. A couple of weeks after, uh, but some of these titles, especially the ones where we don't know or might not be till next year, I, I hope to catch. All right. Before we get to your anticipated fall movie poll results and this week's new poll, we do have a note or two. We have to throw out there that we are long overdue to begin one of our next marathons. We've had Elaine May on the books for so we long, are. and I don't know why we're bringing this up on air except to make us feel bad and look bad because... I don't know when we're going to fit it into the schedule, but we did have a plan to get into those films of Elaine May. I think four films that she directed. Which we should be able to manage. And I I was drafting an email like a week or two ago to ask about this, and I never hit send because I didn't want the answer of when we were going to do it. But uh, we should. It's not like there are any fall movies to see. Well, it's part of it. It is a rough time of year for fitting extra things in. Yeah. Bonus content. Speaking of fitting extra things in, we haven't had it at least in a week or two. That is extra audio that you can get via the film spotting app. And we are going to share a little bit of it this week. This may be news to Josh. I haven't filled him in yet on the bonus content. And actually, we have to decide what it's going to be. We've got a lot of good stuff that's been bottling up. And we could finally get to some of those responses to Joshua Oppenheimer's The Look of Silence. Okay. Including people responding specifically to a particular criticism of ours. And that's a scene right. That we mentioned during our review. But we also have some good stuff on our revisit of Desert Island Directors. So there are a lot of options. You'll have to be surprised as you check out that bonus content. More information about film spotting bonus content is available via film spotting.net just click on apps i've been watching you and you watching me my dear miss everything make no mistake the game is coming to its end Thank you, Donald Sutherland. According to most film spotting listeners, that's just fine because they'd rather watch just about anything else instead. Sorry, Josh. A couple weeks back in anticipation of our fall movie preview, we asked you to name your most anticipated movie of the fall season, which to the confusion of some we defined as pre Thanksgiving weekend. The options we gave you were Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. That's with Tom Hanks and a script from the Coen brothers. Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak. That was your pick in the poll and your number one most anticipated Uh, fall movie. Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2. The Martian, Matt Damon on Mars, directed by Ridley Scott. Spectre, the new Bond film, which was my pick in the poll, though I rated The Martian just slightly higher on our fall preview. Steve Jobs, Danny Boyle, Aaron Sorkin, Michael Fassbender there in the lead role, and The Walk. This was Michael Phillips' number one anticipated movie of the fall, directed by Robert Zemeckis. We did give you our insurance against inevitable oversights option. That is Other. Josh, how did it come out? Michael Phillips is alone. He's the only one who wants to see The Walk. That received 3% of the vote. Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 received 5%. Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, only 6% of the vote. When is the last time a Spielberg film 
fared that low on a poll like this. Maybe what Michael was saying last week on the show is true, because I feel that same kind of apathy about it. Really just something about it just feels like Spielberg and Hanks, and we're going to get something solid, but unremarkable, and I can't get excited about it. Right in the middle here with 8% is the other option. Then comes Steve Jobs, 10%. Big jump here for the top three. My pick, Crimson Peak, received 21% of the vote. The Martian, 23%, but winning was Spectre with 24%. Those were really close, though. You're right. Maybe the closest we've had in any poll in a while. And I was happy to see those top two, obviously, because I'm a little bit conflicted on which one I'd rather see more. If they were both playing and I had to pick between Bond and The Martian, it would be a very tough choice for me. Some of the feedback we got. Jonathan Anderson in Denver, Colorado, formerly of Minot, North Dakota, said, I'm hopeful that Crimson Peak will be another great Del Toro joint. I'm hopeful that Ridley Scott will actually impress me again and will not screw up a great book with The Martian. I'm hopeful that Aaron Sorkin will have resisted his worst tendencies and will have turned in a great script for Danny Boyle to work with for Steve Jobs. I have a lot of hope for a lot of these. I don't need to have hope for Spectre. That one I'm all in on. Frank Volk in Orlando used a process of elimination here. We don't need another great drama, action, or sci-fi film. Not the same way we need more great horror films. We get at least one great drama, action, and sci-fi film each year, but we scarcely ever get even a good horror film. While all the rest of the picks are tempting, I don't need any of them. I need Del Toro. I need Crimson Peak. God, I hope it's good. James Moss in Illinois. This poll just proves this fall has the potential to be great. From the latest Del Toro movie to James Bond to a Steve Jobs biopic starring film spotting madness champion trademark Michael Fassbender. He should just change his name to that. When is that going to happen? This fall should provide ample opportunity for discussion and enjoyment. That being said, I voted for Bridge of Spies. Why? Because Spielberg and Hanks. That's why. So in the minority, but there are some people who are very excited out there. Alyssa Myers wrote in from Arlington, Virginia. I'm extremely excited for every movie on this list. The thing is, I'm also reasonably certain that all of them will be good, which somehow lessens my anticipation. While I will gladly go see each of these movies, I feel no sense of urgency about it. So my most anticipated movie is a bit more of a wild card, Legend, written and directed by Brian Helgeland, stars Tom Hardy as twin gangsters Ronnie and Reggie Cray in 1960s London. Helgeland's writing has perhaps been stronger than his directing. He won the Oscar for his script for L.A. Confidential. But Adam once said he would watch Hardy read a phone book on screen. I agree. And getting to see Hardy play what will undoubtedly be two distinct and nuanced characters at once will be a treat, phone book or not. Yeah. Legend was my number two or three because of Hardy. Scott in Kansas wrote, While Spectre, The Martian, and The Mighty Fassbender definitely could have won my vote, I'm throwing some love to Sicario from... And I was really hoping to once again get a definitive ruling on how to pronounce this Canadian filmmaker's name. But... Denis Villeneuve. It's neither of us. Neither of us had time to look it up again. There's no way. There's no way it's Villeneuve. There's no way. It looks more like Catherine Deneuve. Villeneuve. I'm going to say Villeneuve. He's a director who moves seamlessly from genre to genre, from glossy, star-studded studio picks like Prisoners to more challenging indie fare such as The Brain-Melting Enemies and the stark, brutal realism of his little-seen school-shooting drama Polytechnique. I'm pretty psyched to see Villeneuve... His take on an adult-minded action film supported by the acting chops of Emily Blunt, Benicio Del Toro, and Josh Brolin. Toss in ace cinematographer Roger Deakins, and this may be the last time his name has to appear under the other option on one of these polls, especially with the looming Blade Runner reboot, call it. There you go. <laughs> That's a reboot sequel hybrid with whatchamacallit. Harder to say than Villeneuve. Villeneuve. <laughs> We're the same three people who irately demanded how it was supposed to be pronounced in three different ways yeah. are really going to get honest now. I can't wait. Terry and Toronto voted for other. 
Dogtooth was a film I was mixed on, but your championing made me revisit it, and now I am on board with the Greek New Wave. The Lobster is also the film I've looked forward to for the longest. Team Lanthimos all the way. James from Riverside closes us out. You guys effed up again. A reference to our recent debacle of a poll question. You forgot The Good Dinosaur and Creed. So let's say this. Firstly, we did not screw up by leaving off Creed. I, I like the young actor, Michael B. Jordan. This is the Rocky... Reboot McCullough. <laughs> right. Because Vildua. what is it? It has him playing a young Apollo Creed, or not Apollo Creed, he's a relative. I don't know. Of Apollo it Creed. Matter. No, and you don't like Rocky, so you don't really care. <laughs> but I can't say I'm all that excited to see that movie. The Good Dinosaur, though, is Pixar. And wasn't it you who was just here a few weeks ago? What am I thinking of? I thought it was you, Josh, who was talking about how did we really need another yeah, Pixar it film? It was one of my questions for the fall okay, there movie you go. preview. Yeah. I, you know what? I think. From now on, all reboot sequels, we should just call Vilnivas. <laughs> Vilnivas. Can, can we do that? <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> so, before we get to the new poll, though, I did want to share the most popular responses for other. Carol, leading the way, made both of our top five lists. I think it might have been on Michael's as well, even though he'd already seen it. Sicario, also very prominent in the other options right behind Carol. The Lobster, in third place among those options, but... Here's the thing about The Lobster. Obviously, it would have been on my top five. Not eligible. It's a fall festival movie. It does not have a release date this fall. It is slated to come out in the spring. So it's a 2016 movie. Legend, which we just heard about, came in fourth. And finally, fifth, Black Mass, the Johnny Depp film that was discussed in some detail on last week's show. That was the fifth most popular other option. That brings us to this week's poll question and a nice segue into the film that right now we were thinking about reviewing next week, but we're going to put it off a week after its opening. It is Black Mass with Depp as Boston gangster Whitey Bulger. Early buzz on the movie, and maybe not buzz, but hopeful anticipation was that Depp was giving a return to form performance. That got us thinking. And by us here, I mean me and Sam. Josh. Yeah, this is the first time seeing this. I like it. Got us thinking about Depp's career and what we determined after a phone call. We decided to have a phone call about this one because we knew email wasn't going to suffice. And granted, we ended up talking about other things. How long was this phone call? As we always do. But it was was a solid 40 minutes. Yeah, that sounds about right. And That's about 15 emails. I'm just waiting for listeners, of course, to write in and tell us how we got this question horribly wrong. But since you have not weighed in on this question at all, you were not part of the forming of it whatsoever, I'm waiting for you to tell us how terribly we did right off the bat. Well, what I see here is there may be some problems with the classifications. Well, I love the categories. See, see, there I love you go. the categories, but there's we're a gonna... lot of gray area here, yeah, a lot of is. blurring of lines. It's going to make it hard to vote is what's going to happen. It is, but in talking with Sam, we thought there were three main categories of Depp performances. No doubt for Depp aficionados, there are endless subcategories of his performances. But for the purposes of this poll, we have identified three. And what we're trying to pick here is what is your favorite type of Johnny Depp performance? Not what is your favorite Johnny Depp performance, though that might in fact determine how you vote. But what's your favorite type of Depp performance? So Josh, do you want to go through the options here and then tear them apart? Okay, so type number one is just Depp. This would be Johnny Depp out of costume and makeup, no funny voices. He's more or less himself. The examples you guys came up with, Transcendence, Rum Diary, The Tourist, those were all pretty much flops. 2009's Public Enemies probably counts. He was Oscar nominated in 2004 for Finding Neverland. That would be Just Depp. And then some of his best stuff in the Just Depp category would probably be Donnie Brasco 
and Dead Man. Option number two, Theatrical Johnny. This is a still recognizable but heightened version of Depp. You guys are putting Jack Sparrow in here, okay? Mm -hmm. Also, his Oscar-nominated turn as Sweeney Todd in the Tim Burton adaptation of the musical and his performance as Hunter S. Thompson in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and what you or Sam here consider arguably his best performance, Ed Wood. All right, that's theatrical, Johnny. Number three. (laughs) Sam came up with this. Long gone, John. (laughs) Depp buried under makeup, elaborate costumes, and often funny voices. Here you have the examples of Edward Scissorhands, also including Willy Wonka, Alice in Wonderland, and the Lone Ranger. So uh, some some rough goes there at the end. But Edward Scissorhands, I'd say one of his best performances. So this is making it tough. Mm. Hmm. I've got to look at his filmography. I can't give you an answer. We didn't right just now. list all of them. No, there, there's <laughs> no, right. be... he's got like 45 credits. <laughs> that was just 35. I mean, and plus, this will involve a viewing of Mordecai. Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that would be theatrical, Johnny. I think that'd be theatrical. Johnny. That would be so. That was the thing we were trying to determine whether there really were more than two categories here, because you can say there are some performances where he is just Johnny Depp, and a good example would be as Dillinger in Public Enemies. He looks like Johnny Depp. He's completely recognizable as Depp. And then there's all these other performances where he's way over the top like Alice in Wonderland, or he's only slightly over the top in something like Ed Wood. And I know you were critiquing the inclusion in that theatrical Johnny category of something like Pirates of the Caribbean. And I get it completely. But what cued me into his belonging there really was I just went to his IMDb page. And you know how it always says known for and it lists Mm -hmm. like the four most prominent movies. If you look at the movie posters, I think it listed Edward Scissorhands, Sweeney Todd, Pirates of the Caribbean. And I don't remember what the other one was. But if you looked at them, you had Sweeney Todd and you had Pirates of the Caribbean where you could completely tell it was Johnny Depp. Looking at his face, even with all the makeup on and the hat and everything else. It's Johnny Depp. And you look at Edward Scissorhands, and I think the other one actually, maybe they were just going by recent stuff. It was Alice in Wonderland. You can't tell that that's Johnny Depp really buried under all of that stuff. So I thought it actually made sense to have him there. But again, there is some blurring of lines in these categories, but that's what we ended up with. I think I think you guys did a good job. My quibble would be Edward Scissorhands, but only because I want to vote theatrical Johnny, not long gone John. But he's totally gone. In Edward Scissorhands? You cannot tell that it's Johnny Depp. If you just well, it's put also up, hard because that, kind film, of, that sort of established his yeah. weirdo look. Right, but if you hadn't seen the movie and didn't know he was in it and you just Probably put up true. a frame from the film, you would not be able to say, oh, that's Johnny Depp. So do I have to vote for Long Gone John just because I love <laughs> Edward Scissorhands so much? Maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe. I think right now I'm going to vote where I think it's going to come out, which is theatrical Johnny. I think we all like Depp when he's playing sort of heighten characters, but maybe not when he's totally gone like Willy Wonka or in Alice in Wonderland. So we want to know what you think about Johnny Depp, his career, your favorite performances, and our poll question. You can leave your comments and vote at filmspotting.net. And of course, if you do leave a comment, please let us know where you're listening from. All right, time to get to 1988, Adam. That was a big year for me. I graduated from eighth grade. Finally discovered. (laughs) That's only a thing in Illinois. Finally discovered REM. You'll never get that. I managed to avoid Crocodile Dundee 2. That was an accomplishment. What films from 88 are worth remembering? The film spotting top five is next. Stay with us. Really? Nobody else graduates no, from eighth grade? It's totally an Illinois thing. That can't be only There's Illinois. only one graduation, and it's high school graduation. 
Wow. This eighth grade nonsense is, is just... No, I, seriously, me and Sarah, I'm we just we moved here and we're like, what? I'm prematurely refusing the invitation to Holden's graduation party. Oh, we will not. I would never, Sarah would I would never, never allow come it. to such an occasion. Sarah would never allow it. Actually, I reversed that. I'm going to throw Holden in a graduation party. <laughs> you might have to do that. <laughs> time but first we'd be remiss if we didn't highlight the fact that of course we're playing the pixies on our show about the top five films of 1988 going back to 88 for that album and where's my mind a song probably more famously known as the song from the end of fight club and another track there the opening track from their album surfer rosa some donors we want to thank this week, Josh, include Katja in Clifton Park, New York, one of our longtime listeners, the lovely named Emma Standring Trueblood in Oak Park, California, Stephen in San Francisco, California, Devin Hamilton, he's in Abingdon, Maryland, who sent us some nice Dr. Shivago thoughts. Josh, unfortunately, I have not had a chance to dive into those yet, but thanks for sending them, Devin, and Mindaugas Mozuris from Vilnius, Lithuania. Your decision to revisit Desert Island directors and mentioning my name reminded me that I haven't paid the dealer in a while. Done. Film Spotting continues to be my favorite movie podcast and one of my favorite podcasts overall. And Agus, you are definitely Film Spotting's favorite listener in Lithuania. We can say that safely. And we thank you for that. See, Josh, the revisits of our top fives, they've already paid for themselves. So should we just keep doing them? Why not? No, I don't Listeners think Listeners will hear their smart. names and <laughs> we'll get more money. New $5 a month donors, Jonathan in Fort Myers, Florida, and Denise in L.A. We've just started a monthly contribution to film spotting. My husband, Saul, discovered you first and would play your podcast all the time so that my son and I could hear it. I resisted at first, but then became hooked, as did my son. I travel for work, and the best way to battle a long plane trip or traffic is to get lost in Josh's and Adam's in-depth analysis of both popular and obscure films, directors, and writers, and film music. I had the very good luck of visiting Pixar recently, and on my drive to the Pixar gate, heard Finding Nemo mentioned as one of Josh's choices for the most haunted past movies. How divine and cool is that? Anyway, my son is now a film major, and I'm hooked. My husband claims that it is all because of his persistence introducing your podcast to us. 
for that, for him, and for you, we are extremely grateful. What a great note. Thank you, Denise. Resistance is futile. I mean, eventually we're going to wear you out or we're going to wear you down. Kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, and I'm glad it was the (laughs) latter in this case. Best of luck to your son. Lee Whitbeck in Danville, California, wrote in as well and said, I've been a listener for about a year now since about show 500. I grew to love film in college thanks to a few friends and a fantastic film class. During this time, I had no shortage of access to great movies and conversation. Since college, however, the absence of friends in the same building and with a shared love of great film caused that river of consumption and discourse to all but dry up. After a three-year drought, in steps you gentlemen. A year later, my enjoyment of cinema has been rekindled, and so I've been thinking about donating for a while now. My decision was solidified recently when I turned to you on Twitter in an hour of need and with little knowledge of the subject matter, or at least the word, Parataxis, which I don't think has often been applied to film, came up with exactly the right example. <laughs> Thanks, fellas, and I look forward to many more shows. This is Lee Parataxis Whitbeck. I, That's right. I remember That's his new, him. That's his new Josh Larson nickname. He's the guy who asked us for an example of Parataxis so we could use in class, and of course, we both said, great, we're now Googling that. Yeah, I wasn't even going to pretend to know what that meant offhand. And he pointed out it's two things side by side with equal weight, thinking sequence with two scenes intercut, maybe with different tones. Now, I would love to hear what listeners come up with if there are some great examples of parataxis because i know there are many great examples but i'd love to know what they come up with immediately or after a little bit of thinking the one i threw out and apparently it worked so i'm glad we could help somewhat there lee was the godfather of mm-hmm. course the classic end to the godfather where you've got the juxtaposition the cross-cutting of the baptism and Michael settling all family business. So two things side by side that shouldn't really have equal weight at all in a way. They're kind of contradictory, but the way the film depicts them, they do have equal weight. So I'm glad that worked out, Lee, and thank you for the challenge. A couple new Silver Club donors to close out here. Karen, who says, I just want to say a big thank you that is way overdue. I'm a public librarian, and your podcast helped me keep the DVD collection fresh and interesting for our patrons in Mountain View, California. Keep up the great work. Again, Josh, we are doing a service for humanity with this show. Yes, we are. Silver Club donor Derek wrote in to say, hi, Adam and Josh. In the new tradition of read my email on the air and get me to donate, I am finally doing insert phrase here. No, not the phrase that Josh has been forbidden from saying, but the phrase for finally paying up that I, like some listeners, am not a big fan of. What's there to hate about paying the dealer? I, well, you Do you know, just get the, tired of us using it too much? I, the drug connotations, but, but I, see, think, I think. We and talked the, about the that. gambling is more what it's more gambling we're talking and, about. Okay. I know. I know. It's okay. It's all I right. Find Derek, it curious. Derek's not too angry about it, so <laughs> don't worry. Derek says, you read my email about Luke Skywalker saying Josh's version of insert phrase here. So the time has indeed come. I feel like I owe you guys big time as it has been just over 200 shows since I started listening. Episode 347 with your review of Meek's Cutoff. And I'm halfway through 2006 in the archives. I actually plan to donate after my 100th show, but, well, I had the best intentions anyway. To mark my bicentennial episode... I've chosen $200? No. 200 cents? No. Somewhere in between. And I thank you both for making my life as a cinephile far richer, outweighing any dollar figure I could provide to thank you for it. And that's from Derek from Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, he's formerly of L.A. We had a prominent California theme to our donors this week. A couple things I'll bring up there. He mentioned Meek's Cutoff, and I recently taped with the In Session Film guys. We did our top five... Films of the decade. So basically 2010 to 2014. It was something we 
discussed a little bit throughout some nominees, some likely candidates in bonus content, but we decided for whatever reason we weren't really going to probably devote a top five to it. And so this gave me an opportunity to have to go down that path and think about what my actual five picks would be. And so it went pretty well. They posted the shell already and the feedback so far has been good. So if you want to hear me babble on somebody else's podcast, you can hear those picks and more over at the In Session Film Podcast. I'll include a direct link in the notes for the show over at filmspotting.net. And Meek's cutoff with and one Meek's of your cutoff, picks. thank you, was not one of my top five, but it was in my top 15. Okay. I don't think I, I got think to was, mention it, but okay. it was in my top 15. Was it on my top five of the film spotting era? Is that last time I yeah, talked about it? it? I think it was. So somewhat similar list. I had some exactly. crossover, as you might imagine, yeah. with that list. My top two picks on that list were, in fact, my top two on this list as well. And speaking of the other phrase that we can't say, mm-hmm. only one listener after you got jumped on, Josh, <laughs> you got jumped on for breaking our streak, ruining our chance at making loads of money, loads mm-hmm. of cash here from our donor who just wanted us to not say that certain phrase. You in particular, because you apparently were the biggest culprit of it, even I'm though the I said of it, it in before. the universe. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to get some more money if we managed to not say it for eight straight weeks. And I don't know if we even got to the halfway point before you a few episodes ago. I think it was during the look of silence. Maybe yes, it was. You did use that phrase about 11 minutes in, and I didn't even catch it. I wasn't listening. I'm usually not. And (laughs) it just went out there to the public. So many people pointed out, well, only one person that I saw pointed out that I used it last week. And have you confirmed that? Did you oh, yeah. listen to the... No, I yeah, did. I did. Gotcha. And right now, it's about the 32-minute mark of the last episode. <laughs> I and I'm trying it. to think. I'm trying to think now. I can't remember. I went back to listen to it to see what the context was. Right. I'm just trying to think, why, why would I, would I say, say that? Such, like, <laughs> such a crude thing. Me, Adam. Well, just, what would I be talking about that I would use that phrase and now it's completely lost it's on me? It's very versatile. You can use it in many oh, ways. I've learned oh, over the years. <laughs> I know what it is. It just hit me. Here's what I did. I, at one point, said that we weren't going to get into our honorable mentions here in this top five because we That's had a, blank a whole nother top five yeah, devoted yeah, to yeah. fall movies. I uh, said a whole nother see, top see. five. I think I think we've completely blown this now that both <laughs> Well, I just have. blew it well, now yeah. if I hadn't before. We need a whole nother challenge. You're the bone machine. Hi, this is Lynn Shelton, director of Hump Day and Your Sister Sister. You are listening to Film Spotting. This is Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. It's top five time. This week, it's the best films of 1988. And if you're a longtime listener, you know that this all started with our year-by-year countdowns. And we, at first, didn't care at all whether it tied into anything. We just picked the years, starting with the year before the show began, 2004, and we're working our way down. Lately, over the past couple years, we've become much more obsessive about tying the top five into something on the show relating to a sacred cow discussion or whatever the case might be. This week, you're not missing anything. There's no tie-in, at least no tie-in that we're aware of. It's just a return to those year-by-year countdowns. It's been a little while, Josh, since we did one, though we revisited our top five of 1989 earlier this summer, but originally that list dated back to the summer of 2014. I think that was the last one we did. We've skipped around a bit. We've done 81, we've done 85, and we've done 86. And thanks to a Twitter comment from listener Michael, he's at Parrot Sketch on Twitter, we now know that we completely skipped 1990. I'm glad somebody's paying attention. Just like our setup this week, 
another oversight by me completely. <laughs> I saw 1991 and apparently thought that's where the 90s ended. If only we had Raymond Babbitt on staff, Josh, we would never have this problem. Definitely skip 1990, Adam Kempenard. Definitely skip 1990. All right. You got your Rain Man reference in there. And in fact, Rain Man was not only, Josh, the number one film at the box office in 1988. It was, of course, as well, the Best Picture winner that year. Do you have Rain Man on your list anywhere? I don't. I, I don't I have don't it either. as an honorable mention, so I apologize to Decent all the movie. Man fans. haven't actually seen it probably since 88, yeah. to be honest, so um, maybe it would find its way onto honorable mentions if I revisited it. Instead of doing that, though, I filled in one of my Spike Lee blind spots for this list. I caught up with School Days. Really glad I did. This was a second film. It came after the breakthrough of She's Gotta Have It just before the brilliance of Do the Right Thing. It's a musical satire set at a historically black college, and Lee has a lot of fun playing with that form. There's a beauty shop number, Straight and Nappy, that playfully merges hair politics and grease. What's really significant is that this was a major studio release, not just distributed, but produced by Columbia Pictures. Yet Lee doesn't compromise his confrontational style one bit here. I was curious to see how he would have made that jump from the indie of She's Gotta Have It to this. And one of the things that he confronts the studio audience, presumably a wider audience than he had had before, was the reality of black skin. It's a very calculated visual strategy in this film to give black skin a new space on multiplex screens. Think about the black exploitation films that we watched as part of a marathon a year or two ago, Adam, and the way that those films often did this, especially, I think, in the sex scenes. But that was for a niche audience. Absolutely, it received at that time a limited viewership. The same thing happens in school days, not only in the sex scenes, though. There's also this extended musical number that takes place at the beach-themed homecoming dance. And so the students all come to this in bathing suits. And Lee fills the frame here with a sea of black skin. And it's not just a party. Because of the stage he's been given, this is a groundbreaking social claim as well. So really exciting chance for me to finally see Spike Lee's school days. Unfortunately, I didn't have the chance to catch up with it. It's still a blind spot for me. 1988 was a pretty solid year. It's a good enough year that my top five list has one film spotting Pantheon movie on it, one that should be in the Pantheon, and one that was left off, one that just missed the cut for this top five list. But my number five is a movie that I think still is a blind spot for you, Josh, and that's John Carpenter's They Live. It came up fairly recently on our top five things that came from space to destroy us list, though in this case, these aliens, as we learned, they didn't really come so much to destroy us as sublimate us, control us, and exploit us. It was clearly influenced by many sci-fi sources, but it's a movie that set the groundwork for other sci-fi classics like The Matrix, Dark City, and you know, I love a good myth of the American dream movie, and that's ultimately what this film is about. Briefly, Rowdy Roddy Piper, the recently departed Roddy Piper, plays a drifter named John Nada, who discovers these glasses that when he wears them, he can see through what is basically subliminal messaging that has been put in place by these aliens telling humans to conform, to reproduce, to consume. So like you'd expect from Carpenter and from the late 80s, it's really a satire of capitalism. You still don't get it, do you, boys? There ain't no countries anymore. No more good guys. They're running the whole show. They own everything, the whole goddamn planet. They can do whatever they want. 
What's wrong with having it good for a change? Now, they're going to let us have it good if we just help them. They're going to leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life, too. Now, I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. You do it to your own kind. What's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. I remember our friend Scott Tobias writing for the AV Club. He discussed this movie as part of his new cult canon a few years ago. And there is that famous line that you saw everybody on Twitter and Facebook quoting when Piper passed away, which is, I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. And Scott wrote, I love that line as much as anyone else, which is enough to make any cultist salivate like a dog in anticipation. But here's the thing. I wish a better actor than Roddy Piper had delivered it. I'm not sure what Kurt Russell was doing at the time, but with all due respect to Piper, it would have been gold out of Russell's mouth. There's no doubt. I mean, I enjoy watching Piper in this role, but... He's not the actor that Kurt Russell is, and it's a role that does seem tailor-made for him. But Scott also points out that Carpenter employs Piper's skills effectively, like in the famous, epically long alleyway fight scene between Piper and Keith David. And I'll just close with this from Scott. He says, keep in mind that epic brawl happens solely because Frank refuses to put on a pair of sunglasses, sunglasses that have been offered to him by a friend, no less. And that underlines one of Carpenter's satirical points. People are so reluctant to change that they'd rather embrace the falsehood of their existence than act on the truth, which, again, is at the core of movies like Dark City and The Matrix. And Carpenter was playing with that here in 1988. So really tough one for me. The first four on this list, Josh, were slam dunks. I knew exactly what four I thought were the best four films. I even knew exactly where to rank them. I had no problems deciding what order they should go. Number five, I had 10 options that could have made the cut. I ultimately decided that I just didn't want to live in a world that didn't have They Live. Yeah, They Live is, it was on my list of the films I wanted to try and see before getting to this list. Just didn't get to it. My number four is a film that came up in our Mistress America review recently when we were talking about the elements of farce that made that movie so much fun. It's Pedro Almodovar's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. It's just breakneck farce. Uh, really hilarious. It's it's like a brightly painted spinning top with its skewed camera angles, brash colors, and whirligig characters. And here are the characters. Peppa, played by Carmen Mora, is an impulsive, volatile actress who's just been dumped by her playboy lover, played by Fernando Guillen. While trying to track him down, Peppa butts heads with his unstable ex-wife, played by Julieta Serrano, and discovers he has a handsome son, played by a very young Antonio Banderas. Now, they all, including others, it's kind of like that central scene in Mistress America at the mansion. Others just keep piling in. They end up in Peppa's garishly decorated penthouse, where they hatch schemes, swap partners, and cause all sorts of chaos. As crazy as things get, and it really does, this is very broad, even for Almodovar. He maintains what would become, I think, his trademark stance of empathy as we see the films he made later in his career. So that even when his characters are foolish, he doesn't present them as fools. So Women on the Verge of Nervous Breakdown, my number four. And that's a great film, an honorable mention for me. This is the part of this top five, Josh, where Adam has very little to say about his upcoming picks because we have just talked these films to death fairly recently on the show. My number four being the subject of a fairly recent Sacred Cow discussion. It is John McTiernan's Die Hard. We reviewed it back in January 2013. It was episode 430. My setup to you, 
for that conversation was, did it hold up as the action film gold standard? And did you find anything at all more substantive to it this time around? Or was it just good old fashioned straight ahead of Hollywood entertainment? And what we learned from that Sacred Cow revisit is that it's still completely compelling as an action thriller. Great lead performances from Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. Think about how many action movies followed Die Hard that had heroes throwing out those one-liners, just like John McClane, and of course the suave diabolicalness you saw in so many European villains Mm -hmm. after that. Great supporting ensemble as well, and there was just enough commentary on masculinity and American jingoism to make it something a little bit more interesting than your average action movie. Also came up recently when we revisited our top five small moments in big movies this summer, that tell her I'm sorry confession of McLean's to Al. And that is one that really encapsulates, I think, McLean's awareness of his shortcomings as a man. And I thought that was enough of an interesting little hook to the movie that I wasn't paying attention to back when I saw this movie when I was 13 in 1988. Well, thanks to that sacred cow review, Die Hard's on my list too. Not quite yet. I'll get to it. At number three, I've got Beetlejuice. Tim Burton was, he was in his prime in the late 80s and early 90s. I definitely include this among those great films. It was his second feature. It's a simple story. Yuppie couple, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis, they die in the midst of renovating a mansion. And so they enlist the help of the title Ghost, played by Michael Keaton in scaring the new owners away. My wife and I would like to ask you a couple of questions. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Go ahead, shoot. Well, for instance, uh, what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague, and I had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? You think I'm qualified? It really, you can think about this as maybe being Burton's definitive work in terms of the mixture here of ghoulishness and wit and lovingly handcrafted special effects. I love that waiting room for the recently deceased, which has a guy in there with a shrunken head. Just, you know, a couple second shot probably, but so funny. Keaton, I mean, he's... He's the unhinged Keaton here. Maybe too much for some people, but I find it pretty electrifying. He's unhinged in the best way. It's unfiltered Keaton that we're getting. Also, you've got Winona Ryder's dead-on portrait here of a creepy alienated teen. And I like how Beetlejuice functions nicely as a satire of 80s yuppiedom. So really does rank among Burton's best for me. Mm. It's a movie I enjoy quite a bit. I love the performance from Keaton, but it certainly doesn't make me laugh as much, nor do I enjoy that lead performance as much comedically as the one I'm going to single out. And my number three pick, it is A Fish Called Wanda. And yes, I rated A Fish Called Wanda higher than Die Hard because it just might be my favorite pure comedy of all time. And I was looking back at Ebert's review of it. He pointed out that it was directed by Charles Crichton, who co-wrote it with John Cleese. And I've always thought of this movie as a Monty Python movie because of Palin and Cleese. Sure. But that's not really the case. Obviously, you've got Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Klein, But beyond that, I don't know how much involvement there was, if any, from some of those other Python regulars. But you've got someone like Crichton, who was a veteran of Ealing Studio and made the Lavender Hill Mob and some of those crime capers. You see that imprint all over A Fish Called Wanda. And I like what Ebert says. 
He understands why it is usually funnier to not say something and let the audience know what is not being said than to simply blurt it out and hope for a quick laugh. He is a specialist at providing his characters with venal, selfish, shameful traits and then embarrassing them. And I do think that mean-spiritedness is key with this film because you're seeing a character like Kevin Klein's Otto do all these despicable things, but he is such a buffoon that we're laughing at him the whole time. And the movie takes so much delight in showing him to be that buffoon. Where'd I leave my drink, Archie? Ah! Don't you know? How do you do, Mrs. Leach? I'm uh, Harvey Manfred Jensen. I'm uh, with the CIA. CIA? That's correct, ma'am. I was uh, just telling your husband here before I uh, <clears throat> had to go to your beautiful bathroom. Uh, we've uh, got a high-ranking KGB defector in a safe house near here. We're debriefing him as of now, and uh, we're just uh, checking all the houses in the neighborhood. For what? For KGB. Is there any danger? No, 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 uh, no, no, not now. Uh, we, uh, we uh, just want to keep everyone informed. <clears throat> so, Archie, thanks for the drink. Uh, sorry to have troubled you folks. I'll see myself. Uh, uh, keep everyone informed. So there's no panic, ma'am. But isn't it a secret? You have no idea how secret. Well, why are you telling everyone? It's a smokescreen. What? Double bluff. Bottom line, Josh, if I have to choose between John McClane surviving and Kevin Klein's Otto, I am picking Otto ahead of John McClane. I'm sorry, Bruce. I just can't live without Klein's, oh, you British are so superior. If it wasn't for us, you'd all be speaking German. And that's a chip up the nose, Ken. That movie just cracks me up. It's it cracks so me up. It's so funny. It's so funny. And you talked about a number of films fighting for that number five slot. A Fish Called Wanda was one of those for me. Number two is where Die Hard falls for me, though. I had a fish called Wanda by a couple of slots. You hit the nail on the head about what we appreciated about it in that revisit, especially this, the way it deconstructed, you know, the, the macho action stereotypes of that era, largely because of Bruce Willis as John McClane. He just, he made the action hero human, you know, he, he was funny, but he was also human. So I'm not going to add anything more, but I did find a quote from Dave Carr who reviewed it for the Chicago Tribune back in 88. He called it the archetypal action movie of the eighties, the perfection of the form sleekly engineered, impeccably staged and shrewdly dosed with humor and sentiment. Now I should point out, Kerr only gave it three stars. He wasn't he wasn't wild about it. He also said that it had everything but personality. But I'm going to differ with him there and say it had enough personality to be my number two film of 88. Of course it did. Josh, we did not share our picks ahead of time, but we did know that Die Hard was going to make both of our lists. And I think we're going to go ahead and just do it. It's been a little while since we've anointed a movie into the Pantheon. And I think as the archetypal action movie... It should Die go Hard in. deserves it, doesn't it? It should go in. Let's do it. I'll be right here. Happy trails, Hans. Bruce Willis says, take that, Kevin Klein. None of your films are in the Pantheon. <laughs> now, Die Hard is Silverado well isn't deserved. in the Pantheon? No, no, it's not. But 
we still have many years of doing the show, Josh. That brings us to my number two pick. It was a movie highlighted back on episode 530 this past March when it was released in a Criterion Collection edition. I listed it 200 shows ago as my number one documentary of all time. I probably stand by that. And actually on my site and sound list, when we shared along with Michael Phillips, our top 10 films we'd put on our site and sound ballot as the greatest of all time, if we in fact had a site and sound ballot, I included a page on our website that had 30 other titles beyond the 10 that I thought were worthy of consideration. And this movie was among those 30. It is Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line, his documentary about Randall Dale Adams, a man who's convicted and sentenced to life in prison for a murder. It starts to become pretty clear that he did not commit. And this movie famously caused a review of his case and he was ultimately released from prison about a year after the film came out. So it's very notable for its impact, helping to actually bring about justice and overturn a miscarriage of justice, but more notable for me for how Morris did it. And I'm someone who's generally intrigued by crime investigation narratives and documentaries, but this was the first movie I saw that exposed something now, I think, we all as modern or postmodern viewers just take for granted, which is the notion of subjective truth. Everything Morris does in The Thin Blue Line flies in the face of a few decades of documentary cinema techniques by aestheticizing all of his material and by interjecting his own perspective through all of that artifice. It's not at all about being a fly on the wall or letting the audience draw its own conclusions. It's really about provoking the viewer and all those filmmaking tropes that had suggested up to that point authenticity. That's what he's subverting and exposing for their falseness. And through that process, he exposes something true. That's the lovely bit of magic that Errol Morris pulls off in The Thin Blue Line, my number two. Ahead of John Carpenter's They Live on my list of regrets that I needed to get to for this year was The Thin Blue Line. I really wanted to catch up with that. So I will do it someday. My number one was an obvious, easy choice for me. It's my neighbor Totoro. I haven't seen every Hayao Miyazaki film, but I've seen most. And I think this is my favorite. It's always hard to to settle hmm. on one of those and say for sure. But uh, right now, I feel like this is my favorite. As imaginative as his epic fantasies, it definitely has that level of imagination going on. But it's on an intimate scale here. This centers on two sisters, Satsuki and Mei, who've recently moved to a dilapidated country home with their father so that they can be near their mother who's seriously ill in a hospital. Despite that description, this isn't mawkish at all. I think it's about 20 minutes in until we even learn about the mother, so it's not like it milks that storyline. Mostly this is devoted to the sisters' adventures in the woods where they discover the title creature, which is this giant feline bear of sorts. I don't know exactly how you would classify Totoro. He's he's not as easily classifiable as the cat bus, which was my number one Miyazaki character, I believe, when That's we right. did those lists. That was a cheat, a total cheat. <laughs> well, needless to say, the animation here is it's just exquisite, and it's all in service of a story that I really do believe does more than celebrate a childlike sense of wonder. A lot of animated films do that, and I appreciate that about them. But I think my neighbor Totoro, it, it lobbies for wonder, not as a mode of escape so much as a real life skill, hmm. something that you can employ in the everyday world. So as it stands, my favorite film from Miyazaki and favorite film from 88. It's a lovely movie. My number one 
pick, Josh, is a film that is in the film spotting pantheon already, and we make those films eligible for these year-by-year lists rather than excluding them. It was also a movie that was on that list of 30 that missed my top 10 sight and sound along with The Thin Blue Line. It's Grave of the Fireflies from Isao Takahata. So we're we're sticking with animation and we're sticking with the same part of the world here in that? Japan. It was inducted into the Pantheon three years ago, episode number 389, when we shared our top five traditionally animated movies. Among the many top fives it had made up to that point, and that was really why we finally had to put it away, the one I always refer to when this movie comes up in conversation, and maybe I've already brought it up again on this show, it's a list from 2008, Top 5 Movies to Teach an Alien about Earth, because that sums it all up for me, the fact that it was my number one or two on that list. It just encompasses the whole spectrum of humanity, the purest joy, the most abhorrent suffering, and everything in between. Takahata just depicts all the beauty and pain inherent in humanity, but I think the work itself is also an example. I think you can look at Grave of the Fireflies and say, man is capable of doing all these horrible things, but it's also capable of creating that. And as much horror as we cause, we can also create a piece of art that's sublime. Also fighting for a spot there at number five for me, and actually a film that I was unfamiliar with until joined the show. And really? And you referred to it so many times, managed to see it before we did that list. And it's uh, it's powerhouse. Yeah, no doubt about it. So an honorable mention for me. What about any other honorable mentions that haven't been mentioned? So my top 10 of that year would probably also include, maybe I'd find room for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I do like I'm it. kind of shocked. Quite a bit. It wasn't on your list, It's another Eddie. one. You're, you're absolutely right. There were so many that were like right there in the middle of the pack. Uh, this is Robert Zemeckis combining live action animation and film noir. Hairspray. Watered down John Waters, maybe. It's but good. still a lot no, of fun. it's a good film. A lot of fun. Big with Tom Hanks. Heathers, more Winona Ryder there. And The Vanishing, this really intense Dutch thriller. It was later remade by Hollywood. I think Jeff Bridges might have yeah, been Kiefer in Yeah, Kiefer Sutherland. But the Dutch original is uh, well worth tracking hmm. down. I haven't seen it. I've got two tiers of honorable mentions. This is how good this year was, actually. It was actually, a really good year. My second tier of this top five Honorable mentions could actually be anybody's top five. I love the John Sayles film, Eight Men Out, a double feature about working class Brits, High Hopes from Mike Lee and Terrence Davies' Distant Voices Still Lives, a short film about love from Kislovsky, Dead Ringers, the David Cronenberg film, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Made Your List, Josh, the Almodovar, and My Neighbor Totoro, of course, coming in at number one on your list. That Next set, though, the films that were really, really tough for me to leave off, the movie that's in the film spotting pantheon but didn't make the five, Midnight Midnight Run. Run, Talk about comedies from 1988. You have to talk about Midnight Run. Another Woman from Woody Allen, The Last Temptation of Christ, Martin Scorsese, and I've always been a sucker for Ron Shelton's Bull Durham. The last movie I'll mention, this is the one I caught up with for this top five, and it helped that it was only 43 minutes long, but it's... Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. I thought about lo- taking Todd a look Haynes's at that for this list. Debut yeah. film, infamous cult classic movie because it was banned when it came out. He lost a lawsuit with Richard Carpenter because he used songs from the actual Carpenter's catalog. So the movie couldn't be shown theatrically or be released on home video or anything else. But it's on YouTube and it's not the greatest looking film in the world, but. Also, you can tell that that's part of the lo-fi technique with which it was made, but it is a Karen Carpenter biopic of sorts, except that the characters are voiced by actors and 
the characters themselves are Barbie dolls. Yeah. Is how we see them throughout the film. And we also do see a little bit of footage or we see press clippings, but it just takes all these different documentary techniques where you get a voiceover and you get text on the screen, but you'll also get these reenactments with the Barbie dolls. And it's fascinating, Josh. It's fascinating. Yeah, I, I wanted to check that out. Can I list some of my other regrets while we're doing yeah, that? Yeah, please. That, that was one of them. I did actually fit in Last Temptation of Christ, which I had never seen. You did. That, that's a conversation we might want to have some time. I, I'm really glad I saw it, but it wasn't really in consideration for this list. 1988 also featured a work from a few foreign language giants that I've really yet to encounter and wasn't able to do so this time either. Daughter of the Nile is from Ho Shen and Damnation from Bellatar. The Serpent and the Rainbow is a Wes Craven, the late Wes Craven mm. film that I've never seen. And then one more that I really wanted to fit in was Salam Bombay. I do like the work of Miranar. Yeah. I would like to see that one as well. But the only two real regrets I listed beyond school days were Cinema Paradiso. Film spotting listeners have always bemoaned the fact that I have still not caught up with this movie because of how much I tend to love movies about the cinema. But alas, still haven't seen it. And Dangerous Liaisons, one of the big Oscar nominees, I think, of that year, wasn't it? That's a film I still need to see as well. Those are our top five films of 1988 please send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net you can also leave us a voicemail 312-264-0744 or find us on twitter at filmspotting that's adam i'm at larson on film we're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting over at filmspotting.net you can find 10 years of reviews marathons interviews and top fives in the show archives also at filmspotting.net take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll how do you like your johnny depp Scramble. Completely recognizable, mostly recognizable, or completely unrecognizable. That's the gist of it. Out in wide release, The Perfect Guy. It wouldn't be a thriller if he was actually perfect, now would it? With Sanaa Latham and Morris Chestnut and The Visit, M. Night Shyamalan is back, maybe. Out in limited release, Amy. This is the Amy Winehouse documentary. It's still playing in limited release, and it's opening here in Chicago this weekend at the Gene Siskel Film Center. I don't know that I'm going to make it, and this is one of my huge regrets of the year I so you far. Saw this. No, I never saw Amy. Okay, yeah, I haven't I been able either. yet. It's not on demand. It's not playing via streaming so far that I can find, so really do hope to catch up with that one soon. The Mend also out. This is a much buzzed about debut from director John McGarry with Josh Lucas. Our friend Peter Labuza says it pushes, challenges, and breaks us and leaves us in a state of beautiful haunting bliss. Next week on the show, we are going to spend at least a couple minutes on The Mend. I've seen it, Josh. I do think we need to give it a little time, but our main review, it turns out, is going to be The Visit. Yeah. We're going to We're going in revisit hopeful. M. Night Shyamalan. Recapture the see magic. what's in store. <laughs> the magic that's been gone for a long, long time, unfortunately. But The Visit is what we're going to discuss. And we don't have a top five tie-in yet, as we just decided to review The Visit. If you've got any great ideas, feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hallgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths, and special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. All right, hit me. Oh, actually, that hit me with what? Your Queen of Earth question that I don't know what it is. What do you mean? You didn't get you.
This is yours. No, it's yours. It's yours. No, it's yours. What's the last review we did? <laughs> I was just about to ask you, since I didn't get an email from you. Josh. This is how it's been lately. So. I just realized I didn't get an email from you. Right. The last review no, we did. I did. Yeah. So I'll tell you. Was what? I'll tell you in a second. I was thinking about this. I started writing my intro because I actually had one. Well, good. And then. And You're then I, I'm, like, I'm like, I should check just in case. And so I went to our website. Two shows ago was The Look of Silence. And I did the setup for The Look of Silence. No, we did something since then. No. We, yeah, we did. The fall movie preview. No setup. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were just holding out on me and you didn't want no. to divulge your setup. No. This is especially great because you didn't even want to review this in the first place. Well, you know what? Okay. So, so it's where, fine. I where can, were you going with it? Um, I, I know exactly where I'll go with it. I'll set you up. I'll set you up really briefly. No. Yeah. Mistress America. I knew it. What? 551, Look of Silence, 552, Mistress America. Oh, crap. I knew I checked. See, I thought I checked. <laughs> you probably did, but you didn't see that. The Look of Silence was before? 551, Look of Silence. 552, Mistress America. 